As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's see if Matt Maley of Miller Tabak is going to fish. He is the chief market strategist over there and is joining us uh, on this Tuesday morning. Matt, thank you so much for being here. First things first, fish fan? Yes, no? Uh, a fish fan, but I will I will not be attending uh, any of the concerts here this, this year, I'm afraid. I, I won't be able to make it down. But, uh, okay, well, the attendance uh, that matters is your attendance here on surveillance this morning. So let's get to the actual pertinent market conversation. We talked about, Matt was talking about how 4,000 became the consensus. We may or may not actually reach that level this year, but obviously that was after expectations had to be dramatically reduced from what they were at the start of 2022, what we expected this year would bring. Does that mean that expectations Expectations for 2023 are also perhaps overly optimistic. Well, I mean, it's funny because one of the things is that that we have heard a lot of, of bearishness around the street in the last uh, last couple of weeks, which is uh, uh, you know the, the sentiment has has, has has just changed dramatically. But you're right; even though people have become much more bearish, they're talking about things dipping further. They think, well, don't worry; by the end of the year, it'll be fine. Um, uh, I, I'm a little concerned about that. I mean, I, I do think the worst, I mean, what won't happen by the end of the year, it'll happen somewhere in the middle of the year. Uh, but the biggest problem I, I think that we face is that when, whenever the market gets to an extremely overvalued level, like it did at the end of 2021, this time last year, uh, the, uh, the, the bear market always lasts longer than just a year or so. It usually lasts 18 months or even a little bit longer. Uh, that's number one. Number two is that the, the valuation levels, I mean, again, when you get to extreme valuation levels that we what we have you, it takes a lot bigger decline uh, for the market to get back in line with what what, what would be a natural level of evaluations and okay and what of, what geez, is that Matt? so much must have reached the bottom but I don't think that's the case yet give Matt, us some numbers yeah what is fair value in a world of now four and a half percent interest rates instead of zero? Well, that's the thing. I mean, we had, uh, uh, well, to give you a number, uh, at least 3,500, and that's assuming we don't have a recession. That's assuming we don't get a decline uh, in, in, in earnings in 2022. And every bear market and every uh, recession uh, since uh, World War II has, has given, I'm sorry, every recession, not every bear market, but every recession uh, since World War II has given us a decline in earnings. So if we have a decline in earnings la- that next year, uh, that takes us, again, something below uh, 3,500. I mean, people have to forget that uh, people have to remember i'm sorry that you that when you don't have zero interest rates and you don't have qe uh you you don't have 18 to 20 times forward earnings you have something more like 15 to 16 times forward earnings that's the fair value so do we need then to come down i'm interested really in the in the uh 
the PEs, the valuations, because it's something I actually understand. So um, you look at forward PEs, right? And we're trading at 17.3 right now. Do we need to come down to 15 before this bear market can end? Is that also something that we've seen in every bear market? Exactly. Every single bear market since, since uh, basically since World War II, certainly over the last 40 years, uh, you've seen at least 15 times forward earnings, if not lower. I mean, but th that's the very best we've done is 15 times earnings. And, and again, the 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 when, when you get to all, all you know these all-time valuation levels, we certainly had it. Uh, you know, extreme valuations in 2007 and in 2000, uh, the very beginning of 2000. Uh, the problem is you get all this addition of leverage, and so when the de-risking de process and the deleveraging process takes longer than just one year. And people are like, oh, Jesus, come down so much, that's enough. It's like, actually not, until we get those valuation levels, because the the the, the, the leverage gets so far to one side, it has to swing to the other one uh, as people deleverage, and they have to, I hate to say it, but they get forced selling. They sell, even though they've reached fairly value, they sell because even when they don't have to, because they're getting margin calls and such, and that's why the market swings to the other direction. It's not just a thing, <laughs> there's an actual reason why we get a, a, a swing to the other Stream. And so we'll probably get something below 15 times earnings before we actually bottom. So how long will it take? I always think of the age of deleveraging by Gary Schilling, which was a financial crisis thing, right? Uh, took us a decade to get through that. Um, are we looking at that kind of leverage again, or is it not nearly as serious so we could be done with it in 2023, the deleveraging that is? Well, I mean, it certainly could happen uh, bottom out in 2023, but I just think it happens at a lower level. I mean, what I guess the, the question is, how much does, does, does the Fed willing to, to, to let it deleveraging de take place? I mean, what I always put back, uh, point back to is 2018. You know, everybody says, oh, geez, the stock market started to crumble so bad that the Fed was forced to pivot. Well, it wasn't the stock market. They actually, in the middle of December of that year, right in the middle, they said, hey, the market's down a lot. We don't care. We're going to keep uh, keep tightening. Then two to three weeks later, the fixed income market, the junk bond market just imploded. And that's when they pivoted. Uh, so they're much more uh, concerned about what's, what's going on in the fixed income market. And right now, even though it's down quite a bit, it's still running fine. So uh, we may get a pivot later on this year from the, from the, from the, from the Federal Reserve where they actually start cutting rates. Uh, but that's going to ha happen when, something, when the situation is going to become much more dire than it is now. If we just have this slow uh, grind lower, uh, the Fed's going to keep uh, interest rates at high levels, even if they uh, stop cutting, uh, I'm sorry, stop raising rates uh, in any kind, of, any kind of way. Matt, finally, while none of us probably could have seen what the Fed did this year coming at the start of it, we couldn't have seen the war in Ukraine, so many things. I think also many of us weren't anticipating that in 2022, we would see essentially the full reopening of the Chinese economy. Many of us thought it was just something that was going to take much longer. If you have unleashing of commodity demand from China, how does that fuel back into those prices and frankly, the energy sector, which has already run so far this year, how much more upside could there be? Well, I think that uh, it, it, can, it can be more upside. I mean, as you say, with, with China reopening, you see the commodities uh, uh, bouncing back, and that could continue, especially if the dollar uh, continues to move lower. If there's one thing that the, we've been a good uh, uh, correlation or an inverse correlation has been the dollar and, and over time has been the dollar and, and commodity prices, especially with oil and gold for that matter. But uh, the, the thing is, though, is that 
I, you know, if you look at the way the valuations are, are trading for the energy sector, it's still trading for, for you know, oil trading at like $60, $65. Uh, and it seems like OPEC wants to keep it at $70 or higher. And now with the reopening of China, uh, you know, we could get you know, pushed back towards uh, the $100 level. That's going to be bullish for these equities. They still have, believe it or not, they still have a ways to go to play catch up to the price of oil, even though it's rallied, even though they've rallied so much this year. So uh, I, still, I still remain bullish on, on the energy sector uh, throughout most, most of this year. All right, Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Matt Maley there of Miller Tayback. He has been bullish on the energy sector. And if you ever decide to cash out of some of those deals, we can buy some nosebleed seats at Madison Square Gardens <laughs> and we'll stub down to the floor uh, for the Fish Show this New Year's Eve. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Let's get over to Julia Coronado. She is president at Macro Policy Perspectives, joining us from a very chilly Austin, Texas this Mm -hmm. morning. Julia, great to see you. We were speaking with Steve Sosnick of Interactive Brokers at the top of the hour, and he was talking about markets now that are still fighting the Fed. How hard is the Fed going to have to fight back in the new year? Well, the Fed has sort of shifted its strategy. It sort of signaled uh, both uh, a hawkish stance at the December meeting in the sense that the uh, consensus on the committee is higher rates than the market is currently pricing. But they also sort of signaled a downshift in the pace, another downshift to 25 basis points per meeting. And that allows them, I think, to both proceed with caution and feel their way to what is the right sort of uh, restrictive degree of restriction to put in place and also hold the threat of rate hikes over the market for longer. Chair Powell's been frustrated by some of these rallies in the market, these undesirable rallies that ease financial conditions when they're trying to slow the economy down by, by holding a longer string of rate hikes over the market. I think that they hope to kind of prevent that relief rally that you're sort of alluding to, uh, that uh, that they can hold markets in check for a little bit longer and make sure that the economy really does cool down enough to cool those underlying inflation pressures. Well, on that note, Julia, if it really all is going to come down to the trajectory of inflation, I love the way that our team at Bloomberg Economics put it when they released their inflation outlook for 2023 uh, this morning, saying the story of 2022 was how fast inflation rose. The story of 2023 will be how fast it falls. What is your expectation on that speed? Yeah, so I I think it's going to really gather steam in the latter part of the year. And we sort of all know that there's these leading indicators of of housing, of rental inflation uh, that have really rolled over. But we know there's a lag from the time that happens to when it feeds into the official inflation metrics that the Fed is targeting. 
And that leg should be kicking in sort of towards the latter part of 2023. In the first half of the year, they're going to be dealing with stickiness, those second round effects from higher wages and higher prices in the pipeline that sometimes ripple through into services. So they've kind of broken inflation into three buckets, the goods inflation that was disrupted by the pandemic, rental housing inflation, the single biggest component of core inflation, and then sort of all other services inflation. And that's really where they're taking the temperature of the labor market, of of consumer price sensitivity. Uh, That really hasn't, it's sort of stabilized at a high rate. Uh, they'd like to see that come down. And that that probably is going to take some time. Isn't the third bucket the hardest, Julie? I mean, from my understanding, services is the hardest uh, piece of inflation for the Fed to affect because, you know, with goods, um, certainly with something like, you know, car sales or home sales, they can easily raise rates and limit the number of buyers who can afford to come in. In terms of services, do they have to just cause real economic pain? to bring those prices down? Do they have to, you know, knock mom and dad out of work? Do they have to put people on the unemployment line in order to get services inflation down? You know, that's one possible outcome. We don't really know for sure. But I will say this. The pandemic disrupted services inflation as well as goods inflation. Think about hotel rates, airfares. They've done a lot of busting and booming through the various opening, closing waves. Um, And we've seen that, actually. Uh, One of the key tests here is that when will consumers become more price sensitive like they were before the pandemic? Before the pandemic, it was notorious that there was no pricing power. Consumers were budget conscious. They wanted deals. Uh, And then that all went away when all they could buy was goods in in the lockdowns during the pandemic. Now and then reopening, there was this sort of revenge travel idea. Uh, Now we're sort of settling into a more normal consumer. I think we saw that this holiday season. Consumers do want deals. They are aware of the limitations of this boom that we've been in in the last year and a half. Uh, They're more aware that there are clouds on the economic horizon, and they're responding accordingly with being price sensitive. And that's really key to cooling inflation without a deeper recession is that consumers start demanding deals again and that companies are going to have to you know meet them in the middle uh, and they haven't had to think about these pass-through of, of of car costs that you just mentioned yeah unimaginable a couple of years ago uh, that consumers would simply accept a 50 percent increase in used car prices uh, so but consumers now they've got a broader basket of, of goods and services they can spend on we saw that with airfares matt we saw that Somewhere around the fall, consumers started canceling trips if they couldn't find the right airfares. They were deal hunting uh, and airlines had to respond accordingly. So I think we're getting back into a more normal zone of consumer price sensitivity. And that's that's really key because that would allow the Fed to cool that services inflation without a very deep recession. What about people Uh, waiting? Because consumers go back to their old bargain hunting ways. Julia, uh, you know, a lot of people in the housing market currently are 
on the sidelines because they're looking at six, seven percent, eight percent mortgages. Maybe a lot of people, you know, I want to buy um, this year, next year. I want to buy the last Dodge Challenger Hellcat. They'll never make one again. Twenty twenty three. I think it's the fifteenth year of them building that. A gigantic muscle car and they'll never build one again. But Chrysler right now is offering me 7.29%. I'm not going to finance at that rate. Right. If I wait till right. the end of 2023, are those borrowing costs going to come back down? Uh, by the end of 2023, but remember, we have to go through the the, the uh, soft patch or recession first before we get to that relief. The rates are high right now to cause the pain uh, that you're describing, to cause the reaction of, you know what, I'm not going to buy this car because rates are too high. I'm not going to buy this house uh, because rates are too high. That is the demand cooling the Fed is looking for. Uh, and we are seeing it. We have seen, despite better production of new cars, more of better availability, eh, car sales have been kind of languishing still because the right rates of financing a car loan have shot up so much. Consumers are looking at a big jump in payments uh, for for a new car or, or any car. And so they're responding accordingly. We're seeing used car prices fall pretty consistently in the last few months after soaring in the last couple of years. And we first saw some softness in new car pricing uh, in the last inflation report. We yeah. would expect that to follow through into the first half of the year. Some actual discounts on MSRP. Imagine that, if you will. Hmm. All right, Julia Coronado of Macro Policy Perspectives. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's bring in Dr. Bhakti Hansati. She's Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins. Great to see you. It has been a while uh, since we've spoken. If we could just think about China in particular in terms of the remaining COVID story, what is your expectation for what is going to happen there, given the vaccination rates that they have, given now that there's been basically an entire removal of restrictions? When could China reach a peak in cases? I think it's really hard to say, answer your question, when can they reach a peak? Because we just don't have accurate reporting data from the National Health Commission. Um, China stopped reporting cases. We're reliant on the China CDC, who traditionally does monthly reporting. Um, and we have not seen numbers coming out of China. So when can they heat a, heat, get a peak? I honestly don't know. But what we're seeing is that there's been a rapid surge, similar to the Delta and the Omicron waves. In most countries, when we went through Delta and Omicron, we saw a peak at six weeks. So I'm praying for them that this is fast and rapid and resolves soon. We also do know that China has high vaccination rates with over 90.2% of individuals fully vaccinated. And we have also heard that Chinese have access to oral antivirals that will decrease hospitalizations and deaths. So, you know, they are similar to the U.S. in that there is innate immune protection available to individuals and that... We know that they're likely sick with the newer variants, which have a much, much more, much more transmissible and so much more likely to peak early. So this newer variant, it's not Delta, it's not Omicron. Do we have a new name for it? And what else do we know about it besides the transmissibility? We have numbers and letters. So we have moved away from names. We have BA 1.1, BA 5, um, BA 5.1's Q. So Lame. we know in trans- transmissible, <laughs> I know, right? But we ran out of names a long time ago. So 
We know that in terms of transmissibility, within two to three days of individuals coming in contact with someone that's COVID positive, that they'll be symptomatic. We know that at five days, individuals will get sicker, requiring hospitalization and needing therapeutic treatment. We know that as quickly as it comes on, it goes off. So individuals are most likely to be symptom free within 10 days. I don't want to wear a mask. Do we have to wear masks again? I don't think I'm going to. It depends who you are, right? I don't know you, but if I did know you and I knew you were immunocompromised or you had um, a disease that made you vulnerable to getting really, really sick from COVID or you were an individual in whom the oral antivirals were unavailable, I would say wear a mask. Um, I will say, though, wearing a mask is tough. We are exhausted as a nation and that you need to assess your own risk. And every American has agency to make those decisions. I was speaking with Matt earlier about how so many people I know are sick right now. Some of them are COVID positive. It seems like I know more COVID positive people than I have in probably a year. But there are also a number of people who are just ill, whether that's the flu or sinus infections. I myself feel like I have been getting sick way more often than I ever did pre-pandemic. I'm just wondering, like long-term health ramifications, if people are getting more sick, whether because that we've suppressed our immune systems by wearing masks and not interacting yeah. with people and well, we're getting I, just, are we going to be more sick more often, especially now that COVID is probably going to be circulating in the population well, for maybe, some time to come as a seasonal virus? Maybe, Doc, you can solve something that, that an argument that we have at the Miller household. My wife wears masks all the time and constantly, uh, what do you call this? Washing your she's hands? Con- no, not wash. She's using this, oh, hand this hand sanitizer all the time, <laughs> right? Like, it's an addiction. I never use it and don't wear masks. I never get sick, and she constantly does. Have have people who are overprotective of their immune systems allowed them to weaken so that they get sick so much, or is this just uh, coincidence and coincidence in my anecdotal um, uh, home life? So again, no easy answers here. And I, in my household, we joke. I've had more viruses and pumpkin spice lattes, but I'm the mom of two <laughs> young kids. I have a five year old and a two year old, right? And they're bringing stuff from home. So I think what's really going on here is, yes, we have not been as exposed in the last two years um, as we should have been to common household colds, to different enteroviruses, coronaviruses and colds. Also, however, if you look at the current strains of RSV and flu, they are more virulent than they have been previously. This happens with the flu. Every five to seven years, you get a flu variant that is more aggressive than previous. So I think it's a combination of two, right? Last year, we weren't exposed. We don't have any immunity. On top of that, we have a flu and an RSV season that is also hitting us really hard. Are we about to become a nation that's constantly sick? I don't think so. Um, Does your wife have a weaker immune system compared to you? Probably not. She's probably just exposed. Maybe she's at home looking after kids. Maybe she's out there doing things in the community, going grocery shopping. Um, and you are in the studio and you're more protected. I think it all depends on what our lives look like and what our exposures are and thus what we are likely to be inflicted with. All right, Doc, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure talking to you again, although hopefully it's not too often, right? Because um, when we're all healthier, we see see you less often. (laughs) Dr. Bhakti Hansadi there of Johns Hopkins talking to us about this wave that we're seeing. And it's 
uh, I don't think it's anecdotal, right? We have the data to back up that we really do see it coming back in a pretty serious way. And hopefully uh, it's just more transmissible and not as uh, yeah. not as fatal. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Let's talk about what to expect in terms of policy in this uh, divided Congress that we will see sworn in to kick off 2023. Isaac Boltanski joins us, Policy Research Director at BTIG. And Isaac, you've uh, looked deeply into what's happening in terms of the legislative agenda for next year, even before we're finished with the legislative agenda for 2022. Do we finish everything here? Does the Congress just call it quits and start afresh? Um, what are you concerned about business that hasn't been done yet? Look, this was actually a very busy Congress. And despite all of the headline volatility that all of us had to live through, they actually accomplished a fair amount from the infrastructure bill to the IRA to this massive $1.7 trillion spending bill that just came through. And, and look, we're still all combing through that 4,100-page document. And it reminds me, Matt, of that old saying that uh, camel is just a horse that's gone through the legislative process. There are lots of things that are crammed in there that we're still figuring out. But that is the last and final part of business of this Congress, and they get to start again next year. And it's going to be materially different next year, given the composition, which is what I think we're all now focused on. So next year, I mean, there are a number of smaller issues I'm focused on. What's going to happen with cannabis and the Safe Banking Act? Uh, maybe bigger for a lot of people in, in this state. What's going to happen with the state and local tax deduction? Will we get that back at any point? But there's also the crypto regulation we have to look forward to, uh, other financial industry uh, regulation, energy policy that we have to focus on. Are we going to be able to uh, drill more? Is this administration going to be more friendly to that sector as we need uh, more stock? What are you most focused on, Isaac, for, for 2023? Yeah, look, I think with a divided government, we're not going to have these big, massive legislative vehicles that we've seen over the past two years. So it is going to be the equivalent of a legislative grab bag. What can be attached to the appropriations bill in the fall on page 900, right? And so here's how I think about it. On the energy side, we are still optimistic that we will get some degree of permitting reform in the first quarter. Um, it remains to be seen exactly what shape that legislation takes, but there is clearly enough political will for that, and that's something that I'm optimistic about. I also think that we should expect some crypto legislation. Now, here, I don't think you're going to get the massive comprehensive bill that some want. Instead, I think it's going to be more narrowly targeted to stable coins, uh, because that's something that Congress understands, kind of like a money market fund, kind of like a deposit account. They can get their arms around that. 
Um, beyond that, I think I'm mostly going to be focused on how does Congress interact with, you know, the regulatory state here in D.C. And the we have some acronyms that I think are going to play a big role in, in 2023, such as FTC, CFPB. Um, a lot of these regulatory entities are going to get far more active, which is going to have real repercussions for the market. Okay, so those are a lot of very specific policy areas, Isaac. If we can talk about just macroeconomic policy for a second, Matt and I were talking about the dynamics between monetary and fiscal policy, how both were so accommodative. There was so much stimulus a few years ago. Obviously, this is a very different story now. And when you have a Republican House, the likelihood of getting any further fiscal spending through is probably pretty small. So if we do indeed get a U.S. recession next year, what would you expect the re- reaction from Washington, D.C. to look like? I think I think it's going to sound like crickets, Haley. I really do. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of that saying that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And the last time that we had a Republican House and a Democrat in the White House was the 2011 to 2013 time period. And during that time period, we had legislative logjam, fiscal brinksmanship, fights over the debt ceiling, and what passed for fiscal austerity here in D.C. was something called the Budget Control Act, which had mandatory sequestration. And so, look, just as we have talked about the the Fed put disappearing, I firmly believe that the fiscal congressional put expires the minute the new Congress is sworn in in a couple of days. Well, speaking of who's getting sworn in in a couple of days, I do want to get your take, Isaac, on one of those elected uh, congressmen in particular, George Santos, the Republican here in New York, who has now admitted essentially to embellishing his resume about his college degree, about working at two major Wall Street firms. He left something out as well, right? There there were many previously married and he was previously married. There's just a lot of different points of contention here, yet he says he still plans to take the oath of office on January 3rd. I'm just wondering what your reaction to these revelations is. It's shocking, it's disappointing, and it's not at all surprising. I think Mm -hmm. as we've whittled away uh, what what the truth is when it comes to our political discourse, these things are are going to continue to happen. I'd be interested to see if he actually makes it. Um, I, I think that part of the strategy now is to just hope that the story dies down. Over the next few days, I I struggle to see that happening. Um, But once he gets into Congress, I I would tell you, I think that it's going to be very difficult for him to actually legislate effectively because he will carry a degree of toxicity with him from these stories. But this is in a lot of ways the the new normal, given where our political discourse is. He uttered the words, I am not a criminal in an interview with The Post. Those are never good words to have to say. Isaac, thanks so much for joining us. Isaac Boltanski of BTIG talking to us about what to expect for 2023 out of Washington, D.C. Thanks very much. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month 
like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.